The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Ah, it cost four pounds seventeen. I was on the committee that made the collection. I thank you for your efforts, McEwen. Five pounds was subscribed. That, that left three shillings. You're not going to give me the change, eh? <laughs> I expended it on this. A, a little extra token I thought you might fancy. I saw it during Easter week in a, in a little window in Glasgow, curiosity shop. It, it seemed to whisper to me, buy me for Professor Lindenbrook. Uh, what did you reply? I said, only if you can be bought for three shillings. I had to argue with the owner all through Good Friday. It's love, of course. Mm -hmm. Exceptionally heavy. Could serve as a paperweight. Do you like it, Professor? That's a scholar's choice. Lava. I swear there's something inside. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, October 27th, 2016. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. I'm sure we shouldn't be telling them this, but judging from listener responses and online stats, our next guest is proving to be among our most popular. The expert who isn't has returned to join us for his third round on the show this year, and his name is Dave Plum, and his unexpert observations and insights about climate change, CO2, Venus, Mars, are among the topics we've already discussed, and who knows what else we'll get into today, because that's something we're going to discover as the show progresses. Great to have you back, Dave. Thank you. Pleased to be here. And we're pleased to have you, because it's been a lot of fun. I think you're going to be taking us in a new direction today, but before we go there... We have to remind our listeners that they can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, hear us on WBCQ, and on Channel 292. Visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links, including Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and, of course, where you can access all of our past broadcasts. Well, Dave, what's on your mind today? We last left off uh, on our last um, discussion back in August on everything about experts and speaking about experts and climate change and even warming to global warming. <laughs> well, I, <clears throat> I'd like to start with a little bit of unfinished business. We started out talking about this and then we got sidetracked and never really finished the thought. And it has to do with this whole business of atmospheric CO2 because this is what the uh, global warming uh, climate change lobby talks about all the time is that atmospheric CO2 percentage is the be-all and end-all of uh, what drives a planet's uh, temperature. And, and climate yeah. in general. Yeah. Yes, I mean, we talked about this percentage perfidy, as I call it, where when you talk about 10% of this or 100% of that, if it's money, people ask percent of what? Because they relate to it when it's money, but when it's atmospheric CO2, they don't ask percent of what, and the percent of what is is, is really the, the crux of the matter. And we talked about the amount of actual um, tonnage of CO2 that's in the, the atmospheres of uh, Earth, Mars, and Venus, but the salient point is here that Mars and Venus both have atmospheres percentage-wise that are about 96% CO2. Uh, the atmosphere of Earth is 0.04% CO2. 
and, and if you're going to go on atmospheric CO2 percentage as an indicator of what uh, a planet's uh, temperature should be, then you would expect Mars and Venus to have pretty much identical temperatures because they have identical atmospheric CO2 content. What we find in actual fact is that Venus is 462 degrees centigrade and Mars is minus 63 degrees centigrade on average. That's a difference, if I did my math right, of about uh, 525 centigrade degrees. And the question in my mind is that if atmospheric CO2 is the be-all and end-all of a planet's temperature, then how do you explain that difference? And, and I'm not an expert in this. I look at the big picture, I'm a generalist, and, and I look at distance from the sun. Now, Neil deGrasse Tyson in his uh, space, uh, space-time, Cosmos space-time uh, Odyssey series told us very specifically that Venus is hotter than Earth not because it's closer to the sun. Uh, and I disagree with that assessment, but again, mm -hmm. he's the astrophysicist and I'm not. But I understand the inverse square law. And we talked about that in the last show where if you're yeah, twice as far from a heat source, you actually get uh, a quarter as much heat. And if you're three times as far away, you get one-ninth as much heat and, and so on. And of course, on. you pointed out how even a slight t tilt in the Earth's uh, uh, axis changes the season. Makes a huge difference so between like plus 40 and minus 40 centigrade yeah. in the northern hemisphere here. We experience that on a seasonal variation. Uh, so anyway, the, the point is that Venus is about 108 million kilometers from the sun. Uh, Earth is 150 million kilometers from the sun, so that's 42 million kilometers further than Venus. And Mars is 228 million kilometers from the sun. So Mars is actually 120 million kilometers or 75 million miles further from the sun than Venus is. And if you apply the inverse square law to this, uh, in terms of solar irradiance, the actual amount of uh, solar energy uh, that Venus receives compared with the amount of solar energy that Mars receives, Venus receives 4.44 times as much solar energy as Mars does, Mars does nearly four and a half times the amount of solar energy that uh, that Mars receives. And we know the, the difference, as Bob just pointed out, about tilting the Earth a little bit away from the sun or a little bit towards the sun, the big difference that makes. So this 125 uh, or 120 million kilometer difference from the sun, I think, um, is a far better <clears throat> explanation uh, for why uh, Mars is so cold and Venus is so hot and Earth being in between is moderate temperature. And this brings me to the point of, I want to talk about Occam's razor. Now Occam's razor uh, is basically a, a razor in, in, in philosophy is a principle or a rule of thumb that allows us to eliminate or shave off unlikely explanations for a phenomenon. Um, so if I can double guess you, if I can try and anticipate what you're going to say. Yeah. You're going to say that CO2 isn't the be-all and end-all, that there's a simpler explanation? Yes. That's, and that is maybe just the that's sun. That's exactly and the... <laughs> it. Okay. Now, now in plain English, uh, what Occam's razor says, it, it says that if you have competing hypotheses, you should select the hypothesis that makes the fewest assumptions to explain what's going on. And to me, the greenhouse effect makes a lot of assumptions about what's going on in heating up or cooling down a planet. Mm. Um, whereas if you look at uh, distance from the sun, the inverse square law is a simple, well-established scientific law that equally well explains it without having to make all the 
unnecessary assumptions that the greenhouse effect makes. To me, that explains the difference in temperatures between Earth and, and Mars and Venus far better than atmospheric CO2. I, I agree with you, but aren't you neglecting some other factors involved in the dynamics of Mars, Earth, and Venus? For example, the density of the atmosphere in Venus is very dense. Mars is extremely thin. And uh, Earth, of course, is just right in the Goldilocks zone. But, um, and also you have the axial tilt. Venus has very little axial tilt of about 2.7 degrees. Mars is almost exactly like Earth's, about 25 degrees, and Earth is 23.5. There's a lot of differences. There's, uh, there's the surface composition, the, re- the radiance of the, uh, the albedo of the planet. There's spin and there's orbit and there's all sorts of things that come into it. I mean, of the three planets, Earth is the only one that has plate tectonics. Yes. Earth is the only one that has a magnetic field as a result. Earth is the only one that has vast amounts of liquid water. So we can get into discussing all sorts of differences that account for things, but a lot of these differences are are not the cause of the temperature. They're, they're, they're the result of distance from the sun. So it still comes down. In so I agree, with you. And I agree with you that the most glaring difference is obviously the distance from the sun yeah. and the massive amount of radiation that... Venus gets versus Mars versus Earth. I mean, that's the biggest difference that we can find. Like you say, the carbon dioxide of Venus and Mars are almost identical. Yeah. You know, and yet you have this massive difference. So it's not going to be the greenhouse effects, as Neil deGrasse Tyson would say. It's going to be distance from the sun. As you say, it's Occam's razor. Well, and I wasn't going to rehash it at length in, in this show because we did this last time. I, but, I mean, in, in terms of actual tonnage of, um, of uh, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere... Mars has like 12 times the tonnage of, of Earth, and Venus has, what was it, 27,000 times the tonnage or something. You know, it, it, And that's more in absolute terms. In but, absolute terms of, you know, how much, you know, when you're talking percentage, percentage of what? Well, percentage of a, an awful lot more than Earth has. But, and, and we talked about what happens if you take away the, the rest of Earth's atmosphere. Like if you take away all the nitrogen and oxygen, Robert guessed that we would have uh, an atmosphere that's mostly carbon dioxide, but nitrogen is uh, 78% and oxygen is 21%, which adds up to 99% of Earth's atmosphere. Now carbon dioxide is 0.04%. So basically if you take away nearly 100% of the atmosphere, 99% if you take away the nitrogen and oxygen, and, and leave the carbon dioxide entirely untouched, that decimal point moves two points to the right. So 0.04 becomes 0.4, and then it becomes 4. So what's left, uh, Earth's atmosphere, is actually, uh, without nitrogen and oxygen, the Earth's atmosphere would be 4% carbon dioxide. It would be nowhere near the 96%. <laughs> and, and this was puzzling because we said, well, what's the rest? Well, the rest is argon. So, like, the rest would be 93%. I got educated that day. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But the, people don't think about these people don't think about kinds the of things, the most, you know? Uh, uh, the the uh, atmospheric composition or the element in the atmosphere that is most of a greenhouse effect is, of course, water vapor. Yes. 95% it's not of even our. Carbon dioxide. 95% of our greenhouse effect is a result of water vapor. And the argument is that greenhouse gases enhance the effect of water vapor, but you could look at that the other way around and say water vapor enhances the effect of greenhouse gases. So maybe we should be trying to eliminate water. Now, Neil deGrasse Tyson <laughs> didn't just fall off the turnip truck the other day. He's a smart cookie. Why would, he, why would you think, and maybe we're going into the political realm here, but why would you think he would come out and say that, that the CO2 is what's is what driving it? 
two possible explanations I can think of. And one is that he just doesn't know about the inverse square law. Which, Highly unlikely. Well. Using Occam's razor. <laughs> <laughs> sort of like not knowing the difference between left and right if you're going to go for your driver's license. Exactly. You know, I mean, uh, the inverse square law, knowing, knowing that inside out should be a prerequisite for admission to astrophysics 101. It's sort of inconceivable to me that an astrophysicist doesn't know the inverse square law. So that leaves only option two, which means that he just chooses to ignore it and not tell us about it. Yes, but the real question is, why does he choose to ignore it? Because he wants to deceive us, obviously. Why I mean, does he want what, to deceive uh, what us? Other, exactly. What other reason could there be? Well, it's a political, it's greenhouse, political. you know, anthropogenic, global warming thing. He likes the funding. I mean, what uh, else course, is there? What course, else is there? Of course, the bigger question isn't the differences between Mars and Earth and Venus, but the changes that people are claiming are happening right here on our planet, independent of anything else around us. And a lot of people either accept that, that it is happening, some don't even accept that it's happening. So that debate still remains a political one more than anything else. Right. The debate is not about the difference between the speed uh, or the distance between Mars and the Sun and Venus and the Sun. It is the distance between the left and the right, in political terms. <laughs> you know, in my manuscript, which I hope will be a book someday, I have a chapter um, about true deniers. Uh, a denier was a term that was coined by the anthropogenic global warming people uh, when they thought that uh, skeptic wasn't a strong enough term uh, to denigrate the people who were questioning their assumptions. Uh, so they coined this term denier, which was uh, an, an obvious and odious attempt to equate uh, uh, climate change skeptics with uh, Holocaust deniers, yes. obviously. Correct. Um, and when you look at uh, the situation with uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson basically ignoring the inverse square law and saying that Venus is not hotter than Earth because it's closer to the sun, uh, something else I want to get into is Al Gore um, ignored some very essential information uh, in terms of what's going on in Antarctica that we're going to get into here next. And I look at the these major factors that these so-called experts have simply not told us. Uh, I find it rather inconceivable that they don't know. So I, th I think they must be deliberately withholding the information. And the only reason a person does that is to deceive us. And when, when I look at the information that they have withheld, the information, the things, the, the rest of the story they haven't told us, to me that makes these people the deniers. If you want to talk about deniers, I mean, Neil deGrasse Tyson is denying the reality of the inverse square law. Uh, Al Gore is denying the reality of the stuff we're going to get into with uh, geology and plate tectonics around Antarctica. And they're calling climate change skeptics, they're calling them deniers? Yeah, <laughs> I don't think so. I don't care a tinker's damn about this eclipse of the sun as such. The evening papers will cane it. It'll be dead by tomorrow morning. But what I do care about is why there's been an eclipse of the sun ten days before it was due. Bill, this is your department. I don't know why everybody regards me as Nostradamus. Your guess is as good as mine. Yes, but I don't want guesses. I want facts. Try someone on top. Sir John Kelly. What about the Astronomer Royal at Hurstman, so? Stunning got in to see Kelly. He had 28 fully armed guards round him. Yes, but what did he say? He wouldn't even say goodnight in case it was taken as an official comment on the future of mankind which convinces me even more that information is being withheld in Downing Street.
Yes, standing here. We just put the first edition to bed without you. I hope that's all right. But just to even things up, you can crawl round to the Met Center tomorrow morning and get me some comparative ice flow figures for the last 20 years. You'll be surprised at what I might bring you tomorrow. I've, uh, I've made a new contact. Uh-huh. Yeah, you too, you vulgar man. Compromise while telephoning. What does it all mean, Pete? It means you'll probably have to marry me. I mean the mist and this crazy weather. What is it? Don't ask me. You know more about what's going on than I do. Oh, but oh I come do. on now, Jean. You've been running around that office for months trying to hide signs of the elephants of past. I don't understand half the things I hear anyway. Such as. I'm no mastermind, but such as. Let's change the subject, shall we? To what? Pete's Denning. Too dull. What happened, Pete? What? What happened? They say you used to be a writer. Look, let's just put that subject on the same list as the weather, shall we? Well, that leaves us with nothing to talk about. We're in studio with Dave Plum, and Dave insists that we're not quite through the discussion on Occam's razor yet. I thought it was as simple as, as simplicity. <laughs> Isn't it really the KISS principle? <laughs> well, it is, yes. Uh, William of Occam was a Franciscan friar back around the year 1300. I think he was born in 1287 and died in... Uh, uh, 1347, something like that anyway, and uh, he was uh, what would today be considered a scientist, and, and he loved to quote this, uh, it's it's a Latin phrase, I'm not going to get into it, Bas- but basically it says, keep it simple, and it says that if you have competing hypotheses, select the hypothesis that makes the fewest assumptions, and what's really important about that is that while this isn't a scientific law per se, it is a well-recognized and well-accepted general scientific principle that that scientists the world over use when trying to decide which explanation makes the most sense to explain what's going on with the data set. Well, the key to that is the difference between an assumption and what you really truly know, right? Yes, and to give a simple example, if you have a kitchen, and let's say your kitchen is totally sealed from the outside world, and you've got a, a window with sunlight coming in through it, and you've got a stovetop, and you put a pot of cold water on the stove, um, and you turn on the burner underneath it, uh, say it's a gas burner, and, and, and you heat it up, and you've got a few other people, you've got the three of us and somebody else that's going to help us. One of us is going to call time every 15 seconds for 15 or 20 minutes. One of us is going to measure CO2 in the room. Uh, which is going to increase because we're burning fossil fuel and we're all inhaling oxygen and exhaling carbon dioxide. One of us is going to measure the temperature of the water in the pot, and one of us is going to measure the temperature of the air a few centimeters above the pot. When we're all done, we're going to graph these measurements. And what we're going to find is that while we did our experiment, that carbon dioxide levels were rising in the room. We're going to find that water temperature in the pot was increasing. We're going to find that air temperature over the pot was increasing. And when we're all done, we're going to look at this, and we're going to say, my God, all that sunlight coming in through the window was uh, causing an, uh, an enhanced greenhouse effect that caused that air over the pot to warm up and the water in the pot to warm up in a top-down process, right? Or are we? Or are we going to say, wait a minute, that gas burning under the pot has something to do with heating up the water <laughs> and the air and heat rises and maybe it's a bottom-up process? And where I'm going with this is Antarctica. Because Al Gore told us all about Antarctica, he showed us uh, the Larsen B ice shelf melting out at the tip of the Antarctic Peninsula, what he did not tell us about, aside from the uh, volcanoes that are going on under the ice on the continent of Antarctica itself. What he did not tell us about was the South Scotia Plate and the South Sandwich Arc. Now, the South Scotia Plate is, is a small tectonic plate that lies between the Pacific Plate to the north and the Antarctic Plate to the south. And the southern border of this South Scotia 
plate is called the South Scotia Ridge and it runs right along the edge of the Antarctic Peninsula. And all along this ridge there are fissures that go down into the Earth's crust. And out of these fissures uh, we have hydrothermal vents. Now hydrothermal is hot water. And these are vents that uh, life grows around them. Uh, they warm the water up. These things pump greenhouse gas uh, carbon dioxide and methane and others, you know, greenhouse gas. They pump greenhouse gas into the ocean uh, at 400 degrees centigrade. And a little bit further to the east, you've got a very volcanically, uh, you've got a, another very small plate there called the uh, Sandwich Plate. And uh, there's a, an arc there that the South Sandwich Islands are on, and, and it's all volcanic. And there are undersea volcanoes up to 10,000 feet high under the water there, uh, pumping out all this greenhouse gas and heat. And to me, the those volcanoes and those hydrothermal vents, those are nature's heating elements under the pot. Mm -hmm. And you can hypothesize the greenhouse effect, or you can say that these heating elements around Antarctica under the ocean pumping greenhouse gas out are a more direct and simple explanation to explain any kind of warming and, and increase in greenhouse gas that's going on in and around Antarctica. And I think if, if I apply Occam's razor to the question, I think that makes fewer assumptions. Al Gore disagrees, and it's up to your listeners to, to figure out for themselves well, I which got, it is. got educated again today. I did not know that. That's a fascinating uh, uh, element that they don't put into the argument. And there again, they you know, why didn't Al Gore tell us about the South Scotia Ridge and, and the Sandwich Arc with, it with, didn't fit into with his the narrative. hydrothermal vents well, and yeah. the volcano. <laughs> Anything that doesn't fit into the narrative, you leave out. And that's, that, we can't create a narrative on our own. We, have to, look at all, yeah, yeah. we have to look at all these uh, disparate um, facts and st statistics and observations. And I guess that's what we're trying to do today is, is get the message across that uh, global warming, climate change, whatever, is not just a quote-unquote green issue about it's CO2. Not. Guys like Al Gore, right. they're the experts, they look at CO2. I'm a generalist. I look at all this other stuff and say this other stuff matters. Well, well of course it does. It, 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 <laughs> as we were saying before the show, this this topic of, of climate change and uh, global warming actually crosses the barriers of so many scientific disciplines from astrometry, astronomy, uh, geology, plate tectonics, you know, paleontology, biodiversity, chemistry, biochemistry, physics, all of those things are involved. And to eliminate or exclude or to deny one set of data and just rely on the others that fit a narrative is, is um, deceptive and it's, uh, it's just wrong. And that's why I think these experts that are not telling us the whole story, that's why I think they're the real deniers in this whole scenario. The evaders, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so what are some other elements we should be aware of that are going on around us that apparently very few of us are actually conscious of and aware of, especially when talking about this issue? We are all focused on one one single thing all the time. Did you want to get into the African uh, humid periods? You've got a, a cheat sheet here for us that you've prepared. <laughs> yeah. And I see African humid periods there. What's all humid. about that? Okay, there's a couple things, and these are incidental things that I came across when I was researching this whole subject, and I was looking at Earth's orbital dynamics. And yeah, isn't Africa always humid? <laughs> isn't, yeah, well, isn't it, would today be a, such a period or not? Actually, I think the Sahara Desert is pretty arid. 
Well, that's true. In and that's, the that's part, where yeah. these African humid periods oh, that's where, uh, ah. apply to. It's See, I'm thinking of the interior down in where, where you watch all those movies all the time. And they... <laughs> There's 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 a graphic you can see online and it's it's an an overhead image taken from outer space uh, by I believe it's a Japanese satellite with ground penetrating radar, and it shows a huge area uh, in the Western Sahara Desert that uh, appears to be a river drainage basin, and they've drilled down through the several meters of sand and they have found evidence of habitation all throughout this area, and they've determined that this was a river uh, system that. The last flowed, I think, about 5,500 to 6,000 years ago. Um, and through further research, they've determined that this drainage basin, which if it were flowing today, it would be the 12th largest drainage basin on planet Earth. So it's not a small drainage basin. It's, it's massive. It shows up about once every 20,000 years. And it stays around for several thousand years and disappears. Now, they've determined that this is somehow tied in with Earth's cycle of obliquity. And obliquity is axial tilt. And the cycle of obliquity runs on a 41,000-year cycle from maximum to minimum and back to maximum again. So it seems that somewhere either at the ends or in the mid-range of that tilt cycle, uh, something happens uh, in terms of how the Earth is oriented to the sun, and maybe it's got to do with which part of the Earth is, is to the sun when it's closest to the sun or furthest from the sun. A lot more research needs to be done on this because they're not sure exactly the mechanism that drives this, but it does seem to be tied in with the obliquity cycles. So every 20,000 years, we get several thousand years when this huge river system flows in the Western Sahara and makes that area perfectly habitable, you know, for, for humans to live in mm-hmm. agriculture and everything else. So, I think I read about this once. Um, I did take some courses in what at the time they called ecology mm-hmm. back in the 70s, early 80s in university. And it had to do with the jet stream and the change of the jet stream over Africa. And the, the, psych- the, the, pattern, of the, uh, the pattern of the airflow uh, coming from the south of Africa and to the north of Africa. And when that jet stream changes over these, like you say, millennia, it created the Sahara Desert. And it, who knows, maybe it'll uh, one day come back again. You know, in general terms, the sun heats the earth gr- most greatly around the equator and less towards the poles. And, and that causes heat to flow from the equator towards the poles. And that's why you get ocean currents and, and air currents that move from the equator towards the poles. But then the Coriolis effect comes in there. The spinning of the earth pushes all that heat sideways sort of thing. And, um, and, and depending on how greatly the earth is tilted and where it is in its cycle in terms of whether the north or south hemisphere is, is closest to the sun uh, or pointed towards the sun when, when the earth is closest to the sun or furthest from the sun, there's a lot of factors that come into this. It, it all basically comes down to Milankovitch cycles. Yes, that we've talked about. <laughs> That's what before. we talked it about comes in the down previous to show. Milankovitch yes. cycles. Those are the primary things that drive climate on Earth. Is the Milankovitch cycles. This is part and parcel of uh, a manifestation of the of the Milankovitch cycles. I would direct our listeners to go to our website and actually search for that term in the issues search field, and I think that you'll be uh, um, you'll find there a lot of shows where we dealt with the Milankovitch cycles before in detail. Another thing I discovered along the same lines is uh, oceanic nitrogen fixation that happens on roughly a 23,000-year cycle and seems to be related to precession. Now, a cycle of precession 
is uh, 26,000 years. Uh, if we did not adjust our calendars accordingly, uh, my understanding of this is that every 13,000 years we would have reversed weather in, in, in each hemisphere. In other words, 13,000 years from now, if we didn't make adjustments on the calendar to account for it, uh, we would have January weather in July and vice versa. And then 13,000 years after that, it would be back to what it is now. But we adjust our calendar. So basically, the calendar chases precession around the globe, and, and we never know the difference. But in terms of how the Earth reacts... Well, have we been around long enough to go through one of these processions to, <laughs> well, to, I haven't been. to make the adjustment? I mean, even, even, even people... I mean, I'm getting old, but I'm not too. that old. <laughs> so, but the point is that orbital dynamics has a huge impact on, on Earth's climate. Now, this 23,000-year cycle is, is a little bit enigmatic because precession is actually runs on a 26,000-year cycle. But going back to the obliquity cycle, which is uh, 41,000 years, well, half of that is 20,500 years. And if you take the average between the, the half obliquity cycle, the 20,500-year cycle, and the 26,000-year cycle of precession, this 23,000-year cycle of, of nitrogen fixation falls right in the middle of that, like it's the average of the two. It's not well understood exactly what's going on there, but what happens is that every 23,000 years, you get this huge upwelling from the, from the ocean floor of, of phosphorus that enriches the upper levels of the ocean with phosphorus, and this creates a great environment for growth of cyanobacteria, blue-green algae, the stuff that originally oxidized Earth's atmosphere three billion years ago. So all this blue-green algae blooms and it absorbs huge amounts of nitrogen from the atmosphere. And as this algae bloom passes and the algae dies and everything, the nitrogen slowly sinks down through the ocean. And other plant and animal species that need nitrogen to live, basically the ocean refertilizes itself every 23,000 years through this method. And it's, uh, you know, if you want to talk about uh, fodder for the Gaia hypothesis, I guess that's some of it there. I just found it interesting. I don't know mm -hmm. how it affects climate, but I think if every 23,000 years we take huge amounts of nitrogen out of the atmosphere, we were talking about what happens if we remove all the nitrogen and all the oxygen. What does that do to boost carbon dioxide levels? As a percentage, it, yeah. Yeah, it boosts carbon dioxide by 100 times. So if we remove a fair bit of the nitrogen... Would that not increase percentage of carbon dioxide to a degree? Again, that's just another one of those data points that we have to consider. That the experts about never it. mention it. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Hard to breathe. The air is so heavy. Yeah. Can't tell it from the water. Or the water from the land, for that matter. All the channels we've lost, all the twisting and turning we've done. We may come out back where we started if we come out at all. We've always followed the current, what little there is of it. I don't mean nothing with this river. This river's crazy. Crazy as I am. Arnie Sarknesum mean to you, gentlemen? Sarknesum. Sarknesum, just to Yeah, wasn't he the one who wrote about the uh, the lost city of Atlantis? 
That was an early phase of his career. His real fame rests on his study of volcanoes. Hmm? Out of a volcano came this message from him. It lay unnoticed for a hundred years. It was probably picked up by some peasant. Gathered dust in a curiosity shop till it came to me. Here is a translation of the words. I am dying, but my life's work must not be lost. Whoever descends into the crater of Snaffles, your cool, can reach the center of the earth. I did it. Armisaknasum. The center of the earth? Snaffles, your cool, but... That's an extinct volcano in Iceland. According to this, there must be a direct route from it to a region no man has ever seen. But Oliver, this is sheer fantasy. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Thank you to all of our financial supporters who have made it possible for us to continue our journey in the right direction and to share our programming with the world. Visit www.justrightmedia.org to offer your financial support. And while you're there, sample our timeless past broadcast, all archived for your listening enjoyment. We're in studio with Dave Plum, who has a very interesting mystery to ask us about, something I hadn't heard of before, and which quite amazed me, considering it seems to be a significant thing, but maybe it doesn't affect us in our daily life as much as we think. And what is that? Ringwoodite. It's an oddity, another oddity I came across when it's I was Ringwoodite. Ringwoodite, yep. Named after Ken Ringwood? Ted, Ted, Ted Ringwood. Ringwood. Ted, Ted Ringwood, we just looked it up. Uh, an Australian geologist? Yes, anyway, yes. this Ringwoodite, it's, uh, it's an olivine mineral. Um, and olivine is, uh, in essence, it's silicon and oxygen. In, in a crystal lattice form, and you get iron and magnesium and various other calcium, other, imp- I guess you would call them impurities, mixed in there. It's called a polymorphous form because what it means is that it's the same chemicals, but it, they can be arranged in different physical configurations of structure. This ringwoodite is, is a form of, of olivine uh, mineral that holds a lot of hydrogen and oxygen. Uh, it doesn't hold water per se. It's just got the components, the hydrogen and oxygen components of water bound up in it uh, to the extent of 1.5% of its mass. Now, that might not sound like much, but it's been determined that this is an entire band of the Earth's shell, basically, like the, the structure of the Earth. And numbers vary. I've seen numbers as low as 400 kilometers and numbers as high as nearly 800 kilometers. But somewhere between 400 and 800 kilometers down, there's, there's a band that's a few hundred kilometers thick of this ringwoodite compound, or crystal lattice rather, that's got enough hydrogen and oxygen in it that if we could get that hydrogen and oxygen out of it, uh, there's enough to at least replicate the amount of water we have on the surface of the planet already, and it, there could be three times the volume of, of Earth's oceans. Of all the oceans on the planet? Could be up to three times the volume of all the oceans on the planet, several hundred kilometers down there, all bound up in this ringwoodite. And it's an interesting thing. Uh, they've found pieces of it that have come up from uh, in volcanic activity, mantle super plumes. We talked about large igneous provinces with... Uh, um, flood basalts and everything last time and, and this material comes up from very deep down within the earth in huge quantities so it's been proven to exist they've done um, some sort of echo location soundings I don't understand mm-hmm. all the science behind it but it's 
When I first read about it, I thought, oh, this is a hoax, you know, this can't be real. Especially considering the size of the darn thing. You yeah, know, I like... thought, yeah, somebody's, somebody's yanking our chain here, but I got looking into it, and apparently it's real. Well, I read up on it, too, um, knowing that you were going to bring it up today, and it is fascinating in that science is fascinating because what they've done is that they've taken the seismic readings over the United States, and in the United States there's about 2,000 seismic detectors all throughout the continental United States. Yeah, because it's got three super volcanoes in the western U.S. Yes, but Yellowstone is one, isn't it? Yellowstone, uh, let me see here where I got some notes on this. Yes, Yellowstone in Wyoming, you got Long Valley, California, and Valles Caldera in New Mexico are three super volcanoes all in the western U.S. U.S. and they figure if if Yellowstone, if that supervolcano were to blow today, uh, it would result in the death of up to a hundred million Americans. In other words, a third of the American population, or three times the population of Canada, would perish in that eruption. So, I, and there's three of these supervolcanoes under the western U.S. So, yeah, are they? Con- they're not considered active, though, are they? Or, are, or they're is- active. Uh, they're not considered in imminent danger of blowing, but someday they will. Well. So yeah, there's a lot of they've got a lot of seismic stations in the U.S. for good reason. And what they've done was uh, a couple of American um, scientists hypothesized that. Well, uh, let me back up a bit because what they did was there was an inclusion in a diamond found in Juína, Brazil, Mm -hmm. which is known for its diamonds, and they know that these diamonds were thrown up many years ago by a volcanic eruption from about 700 kilometers down in the earth, and they found ringwoodite. Yes. And I was, mind you, this is like a very, very, very small amount in a diamond. Yeah. What's fascinating about this, from my reading, is that up until that point, they only found ringwoodite in meteorites, and they could create it in the lab. Yeah. So now they found it in the Earth's mantle, at a, at, at a stage, in the transition stage between the lower and the upper mantle. And now what these other scientists did in the States, they said that, well, if this exists, then the seismic... Um, the seismic waves that they detect, right, with an earth, a natural earthquake, and then they just map the waves out, and they say that if there's a band of ringwoodite down there, it would slow down the the um, the uh, propagation of the seismic waves, and they measured that slowing down. Yes, and so they hypothesize, and they and they'd be the first to admit that this is this is a stretch. Is this a hypothesis? You know, there's a lot of work to be done, but they hypothesize that there is a huge band of ringwoodite based on the seismic waves and the detection of ringwoodite down there that is, is, is encircling the globe. And it holds, like you say, about three times, as much as three times the amount of the water in the earth. And these olivine, the these olivine minerals are formed under extremely high temperature and pressure yes. conditions, and they're not stable outside that sort of environment. So when you start bringing them up through several hundred kilometers of Earth's mantle, basically they melt down and their components get reassimilated into magma. And, and, and it's very rare for them to survive to get all the way to the surface, to be yeah, fair. So we can't seeing, really get a pure, pure sample. No, and you can't saying. really get the water out of them either. But the question is, with these super plumes that come up, like uh, these large igneous provinces, we discussed this, uh, I think, in the last show about the Siberian traps that put out enough uh, of this flood basalt. And this is stuff that comes from very deep down in the earth that put out enough of this flood basalt that if the Siberian traps had been evenly distributed over the entire surface of the earth, it would have covered the whole planet to a depth of six meters or 20 feet. Um, and the question is, 
how much of that is coming from deep enough down to to have access that ringwoodite layer? And when it comes up, does it bring some of its oxygen and hydrogen with it, which when it's released from the flood basalts, forms mm. water and replenishes oceans? Who knows? And and what what listeners should be be aware of is that in case you're thinking that we can go down and tap this ringwoodite or sample it or get the water up out of there the deepest well hole that we've ever drilled is 12 kilometers deep and this is about five six hundred kilometers down so no this is yeah, this we're... is a process that takes place through plate tectonics the the melting that the, of the ringwoodite and the release of the uh, elemental hydrogen and oxygen takes place by a the subduction of the plates in the earth, and as you say, it comes up from volcanoes. So yeah, which is the only way we get volcanic access. activity. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Now you also warned about us becoming totally dependent on electrical power, which seems to be the direction that um, Ontario is certainly headed in, and yet you suggest that this could be a kind of a folly in the sense of uh, something you call the Carrington event? Carrington event. No, Carrington was, I uh, believe, a British astronomer back in the uh, 1800s, the Car- and he saw this coming. Uh, the Carrington event uh, was a, a major uh, coronal mass ejection from the sun that struck the Earth. Uh, now, the sun's corona is the outer boundary of the sun. It's the outer layer of the sun and it's forever throwing off big chunks of itself now yeah we uh, see pictures of that often in those ast- astronomy pictures where we see well, a big everybody big every, pretty well everybody is? has heard about um, um you know the the static in uh, like solar flares mm-hmm. and how it creates static in communications and all that sort of thing well a solar flare is really a, a very miniature coronal mass ejection oh is that right yeah, yeah it's just a tiny it's it's yeah like like a mini stroke compared with a well, that's just a flare, as you're saying. Coronal it's, mass it's ejection a, is a coronal mass. mass. A coronal mass ejection is is a huge chunk of the sun's surface that goes flying off into yeah. space, and I think these things move at uh, I forget three hundred thousand kilometers per second. No, that would be the per speed hour. Light, I think. <laughs> anyway, they don't move nearly as fast as the speed of light. Uh, if if one of those was coming toward Earth, we would have up to a day's notice because we're watching the sun all the time. We would know it's coming, or it could be as little as like eight hours' notice, depending on how close the sun is, the Earth is to the sun at the time in its orbit, and on how fast this thing's moving. But basically, it's a huge cloud of, uh, of um, plasma, ionized, high energetic, uh, high energy ionized particles. And when this Carrington event, this coronal mass ejection, CME, uh, struck the earth uh, on September 1st of 1859, the state of the art at the time in electronics was telegraph. And the telegraph operators uh, reported getting severe shocks from their keys and where they had paper um, with what they had to transmit, where they had paper set near the keys uh, in some cases, electricity arced out of these keys and set paper on fire. That's amazing. It also took down the power system that drove the telegraph system, just burned it right out. But the interesting thing was that the telegraph system still worked while this was going on because there was so much energy in the wires of the system itself that they could still transmit telegraph. Now, 
that was hugely disruptive to mm-hmm. Dell Telegraph, which was the state-of-the-art electronics of the day. If a coronal mass ejection of that magnitude were to hit us today, the first thing it would do would be f- to fry all the satellites in orbit. There goes all your international communications. There goes GPS. There goes your satellite TV. Uh, your cell phone. Everything's gone. Not my cell okay? phone. Everything. Okay. <laughs> then it's going to come down through the earth and it's going to fry all the electronics and aircraft that are flying. So they're all going to fall out of the sky. And when it hits the earth, it's going to fry all the electronics on the surface. Your car is not going to work anymore unless it's a pre-1980 model that doesn't have computer chips in it. Uh, hospitals are going to go down. High-rise buildings are going to go down. Traffic systems are going to go down. Uh, I mean, cars on the road. If, are if, we talking if, about frying them or just going down for a period of time and then coming back up? Or are you, you saying... No, it'll fry the computer chips. Totally gone. It'll now, fry the computer chips. If there's no electricity going to the computer chip, in other words, if your computer's off, would it affect a, a computer that's off? My understanding is that it can. Wow. Now, apparently, and and the, the big another big thing it's going to do is it's going to just cook the, the the electrical grid. It's going to burn out all the transformers. Now, because we will have time to see it coming, we will be able to, or we could if we were planning for it. The problem is we're not planning for it because we're just focused on CO2. We're not thinking, <laughs> we're not thinking about this. We're just focused on CO2. Well, so, yeah. so, so we're not planning for an event like this. But if we were, if we were smart enough to be planning ahead for an event like this, we could have a contingency plan for uh, and, and, and ways of doing quick disconnect of major transformer installations and putting some sort of shielding around them uh, to protect the transformers. Because the problem is, if we let this happen and it cooks all the transformers, now you've got a real problem because it's going to take years to re create like to re you have to make new transformers you have to build the grid again you have to build the grid again you have to make new transformers and the problem with it is that the factories you're going to use to make those new transformers need the electricity from the grid to make the transformers so you need the electricities to make the transformers that's going to make the electricity that makes the transformers you (laughs) you see the problem here yeah it's a big so so to get these factories up and running you're going to have to bring in something that's old non-computer chipped fossil fuel driven um and and somehow you know generate power to get these factories running to to make more transformers, it's going to take years to rebuild the system. And, well, we and could always put, put a four cent tax on 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 a liter of gas and solve the problem that way. <laughs> you're not going to be selling very much gas because any car built since like about 19 <laughs> early 1980s or, or maybe even even earlier. I mean, I had uh, yeah. I, I'm not, when did cars start to get computer sure. chips and everything? You know, uh, a pre 1980s car would probably still run. But here's the problem. Okay. If you go, like, if this hits at rush hour, where are you going to go? you got millions of cars parked on the road that are 1980 and later models, which is most of them, right? And they're just parked because their their electronics <laughs> are fried. They can't go anywhere. Or if there's a car driving be- between Toronto and Sudbury and he's halfway there, yeah. he's stranded Yeah, in well, the there'll winter. Be, there'll be lots of them. You know, and, and, deaths, and the thing is, I mean, when, well, this, when this happens, people are going to pull off, try to pull off to the side of the road. The smart thing for them to do would be to just stay where they are and at least leave the shoulders clear. But that's not human nature. They won't do that. When the car starts to die, they'll all pull off to the side of the road. Freeways will be blocked for, <laughs> you, I, you know. It, it, you paint a pretty bleak picture, I tell you. <laughs> it is. <laughs> mm-hmm.
The electrons jump from one electrode to the other because of the difference in the electrical potential between the two poles. Now, this one is the negative pole, from which electricity flows to the positive pole. We call the positive pole what? Anode. Correct. The negative pole? Anode. Good. If the voltage applied to these electrodes is increased to a greater amplitude, the electrical arc in turn will be greater. The larger the arc becomes, the more dangerous it is to anything that may be placed in its path. Now, one thing to remember is that the flow of electrons is always from the negative to the positive. The reason for this is that the positive pole has higher electrical potential. Now, in a simple voltaic cell, the positive electrode is made of copper, the negative of zinc. A similar experiment to the one we've conducted here was recently carried out at Wisconsin Tech, using a voltage many thousands of times greater, which produced a spark closely simulating actual lightning. It isn't the voltage that creates the hazard, it's the amount of current flow. If a man were to come in contact with a high voltage without a direct path to ground, it's probable that he wouldn't be harmed. However, if the circuit's completed to ground, the current will flow unhampered and cause him to be electrocuted. Now for our next experiment. Sir? I'm picking up a small planet on our current heading. I thought there weren't any systems along this course. It's not a system, Captain. It's just a planet. Put it up. Magnify. It's a rogue. A planet that's broken out of its orbit. So, Dave, we've talked a lot about some of those areas of peripheral science that we don't get into when we're talking about climate change but you're bringing up something here now in this last quarter of the show that's not really scientific it is falls into the category of junk science superstition made up kookery uh, do you want to tell us about nibiru yeah nibiru boy that's a mouthful to get <laughs> like the scary part is i've heard of, of this one before yeah. <laughs> now, it's otherwise, funny that no, i should have heard of this before as... but not heard of ringwoodite and all those other things yeah. that's the interesting otherwise known as planet x and this uh fellow Ze zechariah sitchin uh, conjured this from his uh interpretation of uh, ancient sumerian uh cuneiform tablets and he was uh there's there's a number of uh, Sumerian scholars who vehemently disagree with him, uh, but the problem is that nobody alive today can exactly interpret uh, ancient Numerian writings. So we don't exactly know what they say, but anyway, this fellow, uh, and I got this from, from a correspondent who said you should look at this because this thing comes through our solar system once every 3,600 years, and it makes massive changes to Earth's climate. So it's a big planet, is it? It's a big planet. Now, and then here's the problem, okay? Um, uh, uh, some of these uh, Sitchin's followers, he, he passed in 2010, so he's not around anymore, but his followers, you know, keep his legacy alive sort of thing. They say that the planet's four times uh, as big as Earth, uh, and some of them say it's 20 times uh, the size of Jupiter. And the problem right out the gate is um, in terms of... Um, uh, non-specificity, like what do they mean by uh, bigger than? When I th 
picture something bigger than I look at like physical size diameter diameter yeah. radius could be volume, color. Could be density, so, so are, could they, be... are they talking about uh, you know radial dimension or are they talking about mass because they're two different things okay and and if we assume that they're the simplest explanation that they're talking about size okay something that's four times the size of earth um, I've got some notes here that I have to refer to on this would be uh, 64 times as massive as earth Something that's 20 times the size of Jupiter would be 10,570,700 times as massive as Earth. If it was 20 times the size of Jupiter, it would probably be a star. Yeah. If, if mass was related to it. it. It would, probably. And and the interesting thing is that all these disciples of, of Sitchin say that, that this planet is inherited by sentient beings who are spacefaring beings. <laughs> and one of them is in telepathic communication with these people and has predicted the end of the world a couple of times. And she won't make a further prediction. Um, and, and her explanation for that is that it would cause mass panic to know when the world is going to end next. So she doesn't make that prediction anymore. Anymore. But anyway, I did some interesting uh, mathematics on this to kind of debunk this thing for, for my correspondent. And escape velocity uh, from a planet four times the size of Earth would be 160,000 kilometers per hour or 100,000 miles per hour. Uh, we have trouble getting, we have, it's difficult enough it's to get stuff off. It's difficult <laughs> to get, second. It's, it's difficult enough to get stuff off earth at 25,000 yeah. miles per hour, never mind a hundred thousand miles per hour. Escape velocity from the planet 20 size, 20 times the size of Jupiter, uh, 8,800,000 kilometers per hour. And when you look at reorbital velocity or, or re-entry velocities, we know what happened to the, uh, Columbia, Space Shuttle Columbia, with a little hole in the wing, when it's coming in at, at, at a re-entry speed of uh, 28,000 kilometers per hour, well, with the planet four times the size of Earth, you would have a re-entry speed of 112,000 kilometers an hour compared with 28,000 for the Space Shuttle. With the planet 20, size of, 20 times the size of Jupiter, your re-entry would be... Uh, 6,160,000 kilometers per hour. Can you imagine what that would do to a spacecraft? So, I, you know, and the other thing is that, that NASA's been watching for these near-Earth objects, which are huge things, you know, big rocks and stuff. They would spot something like this. Now, there's various uh, philosophy, uh, theories out there. One says that it's surrounded, that it has an orbiting burning moon that warms it up and provides light and heat sort of thing. Another says that, uh, um, that, it's, uh, that, it's, that it circles a small sun of its own. No matter how you hypothesize this uh, to explain it, you're, you're not talking about a planet anymore. Now you're talking about another solar system, massive solar system that basically passes through our solar system once every 3,600 years. And if you do the math on that, it means that this monster has passed through our solar system 1,250,000 times, and all it's ever done is disrupt climate on Earth. <laughs> Just to be very clear well, yeah. here, nobody around this table believes in Nibiru. There's zero evidence for this. It's no, just, we did this it's just fun. We did this just for fun. <laughs> well, I do recall when I did uh, when we did a show on on the Pluto discovery, the photos of Pluto, and 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 I learned so much about the space junk that's out beyond Pluto. A lot of bodies that might be regarded as planets otherwise, buried in among all those. The rocks and yeah, we try to watch yeah. for them coming our way. Yeah. I mean, there's there's thousands of these things flying around out mm -hmm. there that NASA watches all the time. Well, I'm the, sure the point of the point of all this sort of stuff, though, is that 
is that we know so little about what drives Earth's climate. But you know what I feel? We're totally focused on this greenhouse effect, which leads us to be totally focused on trying to eliminate use of fossil fuels, which drive it's driving us into bankruptcy. Occam's razor would tell me that politically it is a uh, a tool specifically designed to destroy productivity and Western culture. I don't know if it was designed to, but that's what it's doing. Oh, I think it's a deliberate. I think it's absolutely yeah. deliberate. It is intentional. That's why they pick CO2. If they chose water vapor, well, you can't shut down fossil fuels. You can't control people's yeah. behavior with the release yeah, of water you know, vapor. But with carbon dioxide, yes, you can. It's very funny, though. You were just saying the big picture, and, and it just hit me for the first time while we are talking about the silly planet Nibiru. And what is the reality behind that? even if it's a fiction. The reality, it seems to me, behind all of these topics is fear. Yep. Is that humans have had a fear of the well-being of the planet on which they depend since ancient times. Let's face it. They were always looking at the skies. They, if you go back into ancients, they're always, that's all they had. That was their entertainment. They didn't have TV every day, yeah. you know. And hardly anybody looks at the sky anymore except our co-host here, Robert Vaughn, who is, who is regular into astronomy. And I see this deep-rooted fear of, of our existence at the root of all of these beliefs, and then they turn into religions. I have because, a re, you know, fear is, the, religion is the way well, yeah, fear gets channeled. I have a couple of chapters in my manuscript mm-hmm. that deal with that sort of thing, and I talk about the monsters under the bed, and if we don't have something about which really to be afraid, we make something up. That's right. Yeah. That's, a, that's a good and point. And the monster under the bed these days is carbon dioxide. And, and, and the bigger monster that creates is the bottom line. Now, we're getting to the, to the, to the dollar amount of that or, or <laughs> the cost of this. Globally, it's adding up to trillions. I mean, you know, it's it's un, it's it's fiscally unsustainable. You're talking about the uh, well, look at your emissions of CO2. Look at your hydro bill. Yeah, that's well, what it's costing us to go green and 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 to no benefit, really, environmentally. Now you blame this on, as you put in your memo to us, the failure of society at large to understand all the issues beyond knowing just the greenhouse effect. Exactly. And so. What is the message there, that we shouldn't be so singly focused on one narrow um, sliver of this big phenomenon, if it's even a phenomenon as such? The message is that if we want to keep considering ourselves to be sentient beings, we should start acting like sentient beings. We should do our own research and make up our own minds and figure out what's really going on. Look at the major factors rather than just this minor little CO2 thing. Dave, thanks very much again for joining us for a very interesting journey on climate and all the related issues. And to our listeners, we'd invite you again to join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Oh, come on, wake up. Uh-oh. Wake up, you were snoring. What? What? Wake up, you're snoring. Oh, oh, I am? Yeah, well, you're not now, because I woke you up. But before, when you were asleep, you were snoring. Oh. Oh, well, mm, must be your Earth's atmosphere. A Martian never snores on Mars. Has something to do with your oxygen syndrome. I'm sorry. Uncle Martin, look. Why don't you just raise your antennas? What? Well, remember last summer when you had a cold 
Well, you used to sleep with your antennas extended because, well, you said it balanced your sinuses. What's that got to do with now? Well, you told me it was good for snoring. Now, if you could get your sinuses balanced, you wouldn't snore. Yeah. Are we really going to sit up? Are we really... Did you really wake me up to discuss the passage of your Earth's oxygen through my Martian membrane? 